Welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous, Season 2, The Candyman. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. The Candyman, a.k.a. Dean Coral, also known as Houston's mass murderer, stalked young boys in Houston and surrounding suburbs from 1970 to 1973, along with two teenage accomplices, Elmer Wayne Henley and David Owen Brooks. Elmer Wayne Henley would put a stop to Coral's reign of terror, by killing him with his own gun. Season 2, Episode 12, The Fallout. So, what we want to talk about today a little bit is the survivors. We're not going to use last names because in order to protect them if they are still living or even their family members. But young man named Wayne had um, met with Coral one evening. He offered him a ride home and a soda and this 13 year old accepted the ride from coral they stopped at a local grocery store got a coke and then coral actually took him home and dropped him off later though when um, coral is killed and all the information is coming out wayne's father is drinking a beer at a local bar kind of crying into his beer telling everyone at the bar that could have been my son my son could be six feet under if um dean hadn't dropped him off we don't really know the circumstances of why exactly coral decided to take this young man home and not take him to his house but what we do know is that wayne was alive due to that fact The other one that we know is a young man named Billy. Billy was a 15-year-old boy who would actually come in and testify to the grand jury. There were no laws protecting the identity of rape victims at that time. So in order to protect his own identity, he actually wore a paper grocery sack over his head with eye holes cut out and a mouth hole uh, for breathing. It's kind of a surreal look. It's bad Halloween costume, but you have pictures of him walking in and out of the grand jury room with this bag over his head. And underneath that is the caption with his name, his age and the neighborhood that he lived in. And so he's trying to protect himself, but at that point in time, there is no ability for him to be protected at all. So his name continue to be part of the record. What Billy said was that he was uh, picked up and brought to, he was picked up by Brooks and brought to Coral's apartment in 1972. Coral raped and tortured him. And then Brooks, then Coral told Brooks to kill him. Brooks did not want to, and so he had the boy in his car. He made him promise not to tell anybody what happened to him, and then Brooks took him home. Brooks would talk about Billy in his confession and say to him, Billy is alive today because I took him home. Um, And Billy certainly said that he was alive because Brooks had taken him home also. During that time, though, 
Billy didn't tell anybody. He didn't tell anybody until after Coral was killed. So you can imagine that the fear of telling somebody, you know, he feared that something would happen to him. Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they scared him to death, right. you know, and then, I mean, and then you still have to encounter them in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like that, you know, they were far away or something. I'm sure he saw them all the time. So he lived with that fear all the time. And then to find out later that so many of his classmates had actually been killed. I mean, so that, so that fear, you know, he's finding out is actually true. But then there was this other thing going on too, which is that, you know, these these children who survived would be treated like they had done something wrong. They were now, you know, um, homosexuals or that they had done something to try to attract that type of attention. You know, the families of these children who died were kind of left with that same persecution from the community too. Sure. And it's sad. It's really, really sad that there were absolutely no laws to protect the victims at that time to protect their identity. You know, there's so many laws now where that just would not happen. Right. Um, he didn't have that protection. So, uh, yeah, it goes to show you that, you know, <clears throat> rape shield laws are in place and in effect for really good reasons. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm sure that even though these are the only two victims that we know of, that there were other victims that had survived that either simply did not come forward or were not part of the grand jury testimony. Um, I think Billy ends up being part of that grand jury testimony because Brooks mentions him in a confession. Mm-hmm. So um, as far as Wayne's family goes, a news media managed to pick up on that being told by uh, other patrons at the bar that this event had happened. And so then that gets covered too, is that there's these other victims out there who and, had and not I, come I mean, forward. and we can almost be certain there's more. I Absolutely. Mean, the way that they were just kind of terrorizing the entire community, there has to be more people that got a ride or you know trusted them for whatever reason well and we do know that he had access to so many children through you know what he throwing the different parties and the different things that he would do but also through the candy store too Mm -hmm. but one of the other things that we did want to cover today was the idea of this what the news media and law enforcement at that point in time called this homosexual procurement ring which is essentially is human trafficking Mm -hmm. Um, throughout the confession, both Brooks and Hanley, um, tell you that Coral would tell them that he was going to sell the boys to a homosexual ring in Dallas. When reading this, you understand that this was an easy way to explain what was happening to the boys before Brooks and Henley knew that they were being murdered, but also to um, instill fear in both Brooks and Henry that if they did not comply, something like them being sold into a trafficking ring could happen to them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it makes you wonder. I mean, I know we haven't gotten into all the details, but they had to believe that. There had to be a reason that they believed it. And I think as we get into some of these details, because what we do find out is, in fact, one did exist, that there was a trafficking ring going on in Dallas simultaneously with what Carol Coral was doing. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, police and law enforcement at the time, both in Dallas and in, and in Houston, say that Coral was not um, associated with that traffic ring. 
but I'm not real sure what evidence they have to back that up. They certainly did not come forward with any. So during the time that the news media was covering the um, death of Coral and the bodies being discovered at the boat shed and on a high island, a 24-year-old youth on his way to Houston to meet up with a gentleman actually went to law enforcement and informed them that he was being trafficked, basically, with, out of Dallas with an organization run by a man named John Paul Norman. This confirms to police in Houston that an organization did exist. Police in Dallas started investigating the sex trafficking ring, which again they called a homosexual procurement ring. The group had named themselves the Odyssey Foundation and also the Epic International. The foundation was run by Norman. Membership to the group was $15 a year and an additional $3 was charged for booklets. These booklets contained the pictures of pictures of young men and also information about them. Norman was born in 1927. By the time that police were breaking up in his ring, he was already known to police. He had been arrested in 1954 and in 1956 in Dallas for sexual assault and in 1963 in California for the same. In 1971, we see an arrest for running an organization for send, sending obscene information through the mail. He was sent to California State Department of Mental Hygiene. So what is that exactly? Like, so, that doesn't make any sense. Like, so that would be kind of um, like, like what you think of as like a mental hospital, but a mental hospital for people who they're considering at that point in time to have something wrong with them. So a homosexual person who was homosexual, who was charged with something like sodomy or presenting as a homosexual, maybe like coming out of a known homosexual bar could be sent there or anybody charged with looking at those type of types of um, material or producing what we consider today child porn could be sent to this type of place. It was, it was in order to get kind of therapy and counseling and because they were looking at it as kind of a mental health defect right, right. at the time. Okay. So something, something wrong with you, not as much criminal like child porn would be charged today of the way that we think of it, but kind of a defect. So they would send them to these mental hospitals that would specialize in to that be type of cured thing. to be cured. Yes. That's crazy. So in 1973, the police served a search warrant on Norman's apartment. They seized a card catalog. This is because this 24 year old came forward. So they seized a card catalog containing 50,000 card files with names and addresses of members and interested parties. So there's some differences on this. So in some reports you, you get that this card catalog was 
50,000 names in other reports, you get that the card catalog was uh, 30,000 names. Doesn't really matter exactly how many um, it is. You're talking about an incredible amount of information. Think of going to your library card catalog, pulling out the card catalog, and looking through it for like a book that you're going to check out, this is the same type of situation that this was. The card catalog, you pull it open, you're starting to look for individuals who are members of this organization. And, and then what, you're sending them propaganda, basically, or like? Yeah, so, yeah. so you would be sending them through the mail yeah. flyers about your upcoming new booklet that you had or, you know, um, information about so this would be members or people who had um connection to it yeah connection to or inquired about membership or something like that or people who are actually involved in the selling and trading of young boys so the officer who served the search warrant said that the police took a truckload of evidence in that day, police charged uh, Norman with possession of marijuana and held him on a $7,000 bond. What? So he wasn't even charged with the pornography? So no, that day he was not. So I'm thinking what they were doing there is they're charging with possession of marijuana so that they can actually get him into a jail cell. And then they can have the district attorney, possibly the grand jury at that point, look at the evidence that they picked up in order to charge him. Because they did, the next day, they did charge him with sodomy and contributing to the delinquency of a minor but when they do this they're only really charging him with two charges so even though they have all of this information and they have these booklets with these pictures of these boys who are being traded basically they're not charging him with every single one of those accounts which we today in today i think we would have seen him charged with at least with the booklet he would have been charged with a with a possession of child porn right. for every single picture in that. Even if those pictures are say just headshots, because of what he's doing, because of the type of thing that he's doing, he still would have been charged as if that was child porn. Wow. Um, but again, the laws were a little bit different. So he's, he's just charged simply with that charge. There were five other people, including two minors who were there that day when that was, they were also taking part in different operations of this company, but they were not charged. Was that because they were minors? Only two of them were minors. I don't know exactly why they didn't charge these other individuals. Mm -hmm. So um, if they just felt like they didn't have enough information or if something else is going on here. So the, to give you a little idea of how the organization runs, the youth were actually called fellows. So they were, they consider what they were trading back and forth, they referred to as the fellows. And then the men who were part of, you know, trading them back and forth were called sponsors, kind of a way of saying that they were just sponsoring these boys. So the ring would set up willing youth or runaways with a sponsor who would pay for their travel, lodging, travel and lodging in exchange for sexual favors. This would seem to be done through the mail. So while some of the victims were considered willing, um, others were young boys who were runaways or plucked off the streets by members who were who simply abducted them. 
many like Quarles victims. The way this worked is that you would write a letter to Dallas or there was also apparently an offshoot organization offshoot of this organization in San Diego, you would write these letters stating that you were interested in a certain boy that you had picked out of the catalog. And then the men would receive um, the a picture and they would write back stating that they wanted to send money to sponsor that fellow. And then they would pay the boys <clears throat> 15 to 40 dollars a day while they were with them and then paying to transport these boys all over the united states from chicago to louisiana i mean from chicago to la so um it to me it was interesting the chicago to la thing because this is um when you talk about chicago to los angeles you're talking about the route 66 route so you're kind of talking about that thing that you talked to me about one time which was kind of the truckers trafficking these um kids which could have been possibly happening is that they could have been using interstate truckers to help transport these victims that's true and, but, and you know it's always been like one of those things that i was like it's an underground ring but to me, this is like almost out in the open, you know, like it's not necessarily even underground. I mean, no, it's, it's not necessarily, know, <laughs> um, not necessarily underground. I mean, they're receiving this directly through yeah. the mail. So, I mean, along with their Sears catalog, they're receiving this catalog. So, I mean, and, um, and it makes you wonder if that's how Coral was like convincing Brooks and Henley too, with, you know like look there's these these catalogs you know this is what i'm doing you know you could be one of these boys yeah. i think that's a very very good possibility i mean that would keep them in line mm -hmm. if you if you felt like things were bad with coral the person that you knew and he had this option to, to literally make you disappear or with henley who was so incredibly protective of his brothers you know he could have been threatening him with that true you know i'll send your brothers away to this mm -hmm. so in some of the materials that they seized from norman's apartment they actually found four pictures of use that had words written on them and they don't tell you exactly what the words are written on them but they say um there are these words written on them and so when they discussed it with some of the people who were there in that apartment that day including norman himself what he says about those boys is that they were boys who were simply removed from the group because they were being uncooperative but it does you have to wonder if these were kids who were possibly missing you know, and the group had no idea what had happened to them. Because it can't be that Coral was the only person who was killing no, young men. Not at, not at all. Especially um, when they're being hand-delivered to you. Right. Or if it's ones that they've done something with mm -hmm. because they couldn't seem to control them. Or they could have just sold them off to that person. Right. You so, know, and just been like, oh, he was, he was sold. We don't have to worry about him anymore. But apparently they take law enforcement's word for it and they say, oh, these are kids who have just simply been removed because they're being uncooperative. Although the police were quick to say that the group had no ties to Houston and the murders, 
John Paul Norman did indeed have a Houston arrest record from molestation of a 14-year-old boy. It seems short-sightedness to say that Coral could not be connected. He certainly seemed aware of the group or aware of other groups existing at the time. It is very possible that he was using them for a time and then later figured out how to not necessarily have to pay, but it's very possible that he was also putting people into this group. He had access to a large amount of youth during the time that he was running the candy store. That's true. And we only know what we know about Coral from Henley and Brooks, right? Right. <clears throat> so we don't know what he was doing before they were even involved. No. And we have no idea. And we don't know what he was doing that he did not involve them mm -hmm. with either. I mean, there could be bodies still stashed out there somewhere that they don't even know about. Right. I mean, that's the realization of it. So, and the other thing that really kind of comes into light here is police never come out in either Dallas or Harris County and say, we went through this card catalog of all of these names whether it be, let's say 30,000, we had somebody sit down and go through 30,000 names and we can guarantee you that Coral's name was not on there. <laughs> even if they did, it's a possibility that was overlooked or he even used a different name. Well, and that's, you know, I mean, that's, that's a, the realization of it too. That's a good possibility there is that he wasn't using his own name. Um, so you just, don't have any idea, but for them to blanketly say, and they say it very early on, Coral's not connected to this. Mm -hmm. No. And from what I can see, and I've tried to look in different places, I've looked in different chat rooms, I don't see anywhere that they came out with a list of people who were involved in this group, other than some others who were later arrested for other crimes that get tied back. And that's weird to me because you would think, I mean, I know now they would track down every single name. Right. But it just seems weird to me that they didn't track down even a handful of names. No. I mean, it's it's odd. It's, I mean, curiosity at best, you would think they'd look. Mm -hmm. Right? After John Norman is arrested in Dallas and serves his sentence, he set up a ring. So he serves his sentence as Dallas, which is relatively short, a couple of years. And then he sets up a ring in 1977 in Chicago. This time the sex trafficking ring is called the Delta Project. When Norman's property was searched this time, they found 100,000 index cards with pedophiles information on them. When he was arrested and sentenced to prison, this time, when he's found in Chicago, he's sentenced to six years in prison. He only serves 18 months. And how would Joseph's sentence get lessened? I mean, are these officials in these names that he's like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blackmail you if you don't get me off the sentence? I mean, what in the heck? Well, funny you must mention that. So Norman's name has been mentioned as possibly being connected to other sex trafficking rings. It is possible that he was actively involved in the membership of those other rings or that maybe membership started those other rings in, in order to continue his operation. One of the most notable of those is the Franklin sex ring. This is another human trafficking ring, but this one is out of Omaha, Nevada, where they were using boys in the Boys Town Orphanage. In this ring, it is proven that politicians, media, law enforcement, wealthy businessmen, and influencers of the time were all involved in this. The ring was run by a guy named Lawrence King. 
King was blackmailing these parties on behest of the CIA. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, you have to remember the CIA during some of these times, Hoover's involvement in the CIA. So he's keeping private files, you know, but he's obviously the CIA in some way, shape or form here is using this ring to keep some of these private files. So when you ask yourself, is it possible that Norman had some connections that allowed him to continue to exist? and to continue to get out on these lighter sentences, I think this shows you that there's a very good possibility that that is true. Well, yeah, I mean, the conspiracy is there. I mean, there has to be some explanation for the light sentencing and then the ability to just pick up and start off where you left. That or you were continuing that work through, you know, when you're in jail, right? Because right. that is possible. And you know me, Morgan. I'm the one who tells you we're not going to go into the conspiracy part Come of on. it. But when it comes to this, I'm like, you can open the floodgates on a conspiracy because this stuff, you you can't, it's, it's just mind boggling. It's, it's, it's a tale oldest time though. Right. You know, it's, somebody would get slapped, you know, with a huge sentence over something like this, but then you have this other guy that doesn't because he might have information on the CIA. Come on. I mean, it just, it's just, that's crazy. And again, in this, you know, so Norman receives this light sentence. So, and again, he's got a hundred thousand clients at this point in time, or supposedly and this is an additional hundred thousand on top of the initial hundred thousand. I mean, well, think I don't of know. the people that are involved in this. So there's a couple of references that I found on some online chat groups, and I'm not real sure where some of those come from, but basically those are stating that he was able to get back his original files. What? Okay, explain that to me, right? I mean, I know that's just maybe hearsay or talk or whatever, but could make sense. It, it could, because one of the things that I don't see here is any other arrests, tracking down these youth who were involved, making sure that they were okay, making sure that they're accounted for, even possibly making sure that they were willing, because, you know, they're saying that these were willing participants, but... Yet, I mean, if the CIA was using this to like trying to, um, I don't know, get information on a ring like that, they wouldn't use underage people. Well, but what we know is that the kids at the boys' town orphanage were underage. That's what I'm saying. So the CIA is using underage people. Oh my god. So, you know, I mean, it's their turn. If they're not actively, if the CIA is not actively like participating in it, they're certainly turning a blind eye to it because they know that Lawrence King is blackmailing the parties that he's blackmailing and turning that information over to the CIA and he's using underage children to do so. Mm -hmm. So yes, they do. That's crazy. So, and we know that Norman had underage children, but that they, as far as we can find, did not take an effort to track down what happened to those well yeah and even if these the, these participants are over age and willing or whatever you still know they're hostage it's a hostage situation yeah. they're not just going to let them go into the free world when they can use them yeah right i mean it's just not it's not doesn't make sense so in the last part of the connection is the connection that norman has to serial killer john wayne gacy 
<laughs> As many of you know, John Wayne Gacy was a serial killer in um, the Chicago, Illinois area. Um, there's a lot of podcasts out there on Gacy, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time going into Gacy's crimes, but I think people should check out those podcasts if they're interested in more information. But what we know about Gacy is that Gacy had used Philip Pesky to kidnap a young child for him. Pesky was actually Norman's employee. <laughs> wow. So, and Gacy, when Gacy claimed that he did not kill all of his victims, Gacy named Norman and Pesky as accomplices, along with naming other people. I mean, they could have been accomplices in the fact that they gave him some of those kids or, you know, leads or whatever you want to call it, but I don't know. Talk about full circle. Yeah. So that then, of course, Coral is... Just to give you kind of a little insight, Coral for the, for a while is the largest mass murderer, you know, which nowadays we refer to as serial killer. Um, but he's known as the Houston mass murderer, has the largest count at that point. John Wayne Gacy then is arrested and has now killed more people than Coral. And yet both of them seem to have at least a dot, dot, dot line to Norman. So um, Norman moved to Colorado and then to California. And then in 1985, he was arrested again for, pro for possessing child porn and um, was sentenced to prison in California. He was released in 2008 and then died in 2009. So he spent a good 40 years of his life. Right. With these kids and doing this to children or willing participants or whatever you want to, to call children, it. To children, really. I mean, that's that's insane when you think how many victims there really are out there of his. Right. Just with this guy. Yeah. That's insane. I mean, when you talk about 100,000 names in the index card I, that are just to deal with people who are taking part in these organizations, I would think that you have that many victims. Oh yeah. Easily, if not more. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think it's just, it's mind blowing. So with all of that going on simultaneously, it just shows you how at risk these youth were in that day. You know, and it just goes back to that kid riding his red bike around the neighborhood thinking he was safe. And all of us riding our bikes around the neighborhood thinking we were safe. And yet this is all going on. Mm -hmm. And it's just. And it's not even just an adult that's preying on this. These are children preying on children being manipulated by right. an adult. Right. right. I mean, that's the realization of Coral's story. It is. You know, and it's it's horrifying because you think a lot of times it's adults preying on children. But when you have your own peers preying on you, that's not something that's registering. No. You know. And when you look at this, there are those moments when you think to yourself, as you look back at this whole story, those moments when you think to yourself, how far we have come 
on sex trafficking. And then there's that realization about how far we haven't come. You know, that these types of sex trafficking are going on every day under our nose and still don't have the tools to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it's in the area that we're talking about here in Houston is one of the most notorious areas for sex trafficking. Right. It just is. And so, and we know now that it started that early. Yeah. So with that, that actually brings us to a close of season two, The Candyman. We want to thank our audience for joining us. Um, please reach out to us if you have any questions. Uh, we'll do follow up on um, future episodes if there is reports of any of these victims being found. We do know that Texas EquiSearch uh, is still continuing out there to search for victims of coral. And so if anything does come out, we'll certainly do follow-up episodes. But we do want to thank you for staying with us and joining us. We want to thank you for all the great comments that we've gotten over this season. We're excited for uh, next season. We're actually in the planning process of trying to figure out where we're going with that season. We have a couple ideas. And so we will be releasing some new episodes in the first of the year for you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. We always love to hear from our listeners. So please contact us with any questions that you might have. Um, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Bodies in the Bayous. You can always email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. And don't forget to listen to us wherever you stream your podcasts.